unveiling the secrets A-list copywriters use to make themselves and their clients millions. This is the Copywriters Podcast with your host, the world's greatest copywriting coach, David Garfinkel. Welcome back to the Copywriters Podcast with your host, the world's greatest copywriting coach, David Garfinkel. David, how are you doing today? Nathan, I'm good. How are you? I'm doing fantastic, man. Before we started the show, we were talking about a book that you've got coming out, and I've gotten a sneak preview, early access to it, and I'm excited about that. So that's a topic for an upcoming show, though. Today, we're returning to one of my favorite series slash ongoing episodes of what we do here. So I'm I'm excited, man. I am, too. Let's jump right into it. Got a lot to cover. All right. So December 1st, 1975. A giant in direct mail died. That was Ed Mayer, who had written a definitive book on the subject of direct mail earlier called How to Make More Money with Your Direct Mail. Hmm. And Mayer was a man of many hats, practitioner, industry executive, teacher. In his obituary, the New York Times reported Mayer had taught more than 20,000 college students and business executives the hands-on secrets of direct mail. Now, you might reasonably assume the following. That was then, and this is now, and so much has changed. Today, we'll find out. To prepare for the show, I combed through the book, and I found 10 great tips that apply whether you were doing direct mail in the 1950s or online marketing today. Now, in some cases, I updated the tips, but more often than not, what worked then works almost exactly the same today. And you know what else works exactly the same every single time? It's this. Copy is powerful. You're responsible for how you use what you hear in this podcast, and most of the time, common sense is all you need. But if you make extreme claims, and or if you're writing copy for offers in highly regulated industries like health, finance, business opportunity, You may want to get a legal review after you write and before you start using your copy. My larger clients do this all the time. Okay, so let's get to the updated direct mail secrets. I selected these 10 tips based on this simple idea. Just leaving out one of these could crater your sales or vastly reduce them at the very least. So even if you tell yourself you know these, ask yourself, are you doing the updated version of every one of these. Because if you're not, you're probably leaving money on the table. Let's take that money off the table and put it back in your pocket. And so we begin. One, write your copy so your prospect will know what the product will do for him. These days I would add, and her. But at least, but back to the book. Mayer quotes Charles Mills of the O.M. Scott Company, and we know that company now as Scott's miracle Grow. And Mayer, the author of the book, Mayer, says this quote is a complete definition of copy that sells. Mills wrote that the lawn care company has discovered, quote, in our copy, we must never forget for an instant that people are interested in their lawn, not our seed. Maybe you've heard that before, but it was worth hearing again because it's all too easy in your copy to focus on the features, the grass seed, 
at the expense of the benefits, the lawn. And for sure, one of the easiest ways to figure out benefits is to make a list of the big picture as well as the granular things that your product will do for your customer. As a really simple example, if you're selling an electric car, the words electric car are not a benefit. They might be to some people, but don't count on it. The words save money on gas and help the environment are two things an electric car will do for a customer that the customer would care about. On this point, Mayer also quotes a poem from Victor Schwab, which and the poem appears in How to Write a Good Ad by Victor Schwab. And he quotes this poem to drive home the point. I'll share the last verse of this poem with you. So tell me quick and tell me true, or else, my love, to hell with you. Less how this product came to be, more what the damn thing does for me. Mayer gives this advice for direct mail letters, but it's also good for any type of copy. Whenever people are interested in buying something, one of the biggest questions on the top of their minds is, what will it do for me? I like that poem. I wanted to ask you, though, since you brought up electric vehicles, one, mm -hmm. one example that kind of defies this that I see is Tesla. You don't have to tell people you'll save the planet, you'll save gas. There's that, and then there's the status of like, oh, they're a Tesla owner. And all you really have to say is Tesla. So I wanted to get your thoughts on that before we jumped into it. Sometimes it seems like maybe it's the marketing, the branding, I'm not sure. But I, I know with, with that particular electric vehicle, it kind of defies that rule. Yeah, kind of like, if you're talking to a graphic designer and you say MacBook Pro, mm. you don't really have to say much else. There are certain things that are branded as luxury or cool. Rolex. That Rolex. Yeah, those things tend to. And, and to be fair to our enemies on the branding side, that's one of the rare cases where branding actually works. You never want to count on it until you've reached that pinnacle and then you have to do everything you can to protect it. And you spend all kinds of money on glossy ads and ridiculous product placements and everything else. But that's only at the very, very top of the pyramid. Mm -hmm. Okay. So even though there's an exception to the rule, this is still the rule. That's right. This is the rule. No exceptions, except for those. <laughs> all right. Let's okay. continue. Number two, the two factors that stop more sales than any other factors. And this is interesting because you might think it's, you know, bad headline or not enough benefits or no. The two factors are one, the lethargy of your prospects and two, the competition for the almighty dollar. Nothing has changed here from 1950 when he wrote this originally. Mayer writes, people would rather do nothing than something. It almost takes dynamite to get them to take any action whatsoever. A few years back, but well after 1950, you know, like at least, I don't know, at least 50 years after, 60 years after that, legendary copywriter John Carlton said that your copy must be incredibly strong in order to move the somnambulant sloth off the couch and to the phone. A lot of copywriters get timid in their copy, fearing criticism. 
They don't want to write copy strong and motivating enough to get prospects to take action because they're afraid someone will accuse them of being too aggressive. And to be sure, these days you have to be careful. If you offend someone, you could get in trouble and even get canceled. So be careful, but above all, be bold. People don't generally get moved to action because of subtle hints. You need to be intense and intentional. And the second factor, the competition for the almighty dollar. Mayer writes, your product doesn't only compete against those offered by your best or worst competitor. It also competes against every available product or service. This may sound obvious, but don't let that obviousness distract you. It's profound until you realize that people have nearly infinite choices on how to spend or invest their money, you may not be trying hard enough with your copy. The simple reality is that the moment someone is reading your copy, they need to come to the conclusion that buying your offer is the best use of their money they can make right now. A lot of this problem can, a lot of this problem can be solved by your enthusiasm and focused intention when you write your copy. Another thing that will really help is your general knowledge of the market and your competitors and a really solid knowledge of what you're selling. I think the one of the key points there that you made was you're not just trying to convince them to buy your product over your competition. You're also competing against the vacation. You're competing against the cruise. You're competing against the oil change that they know that they need to get. But you're also competing against maybe I just want to hold on to the money. So there's three competitors. There's competing products. There's competing ways to spend the money. And then there's also people that just want to hold on to their hard-earned money. And you have to convince them that giving their money to you is better than keeping their money in their pocket. Yeah. So there is, there's a lot of competition coming from all directions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So number three, make every letter sell. Mayor writes, every time you sign your name to the bottom of the letter, you're trying or should be trying to either sell yourself or one of your products or your company itself. It's a good point. Does it apply today? I think so. It takes a lot of discipline to do this. And by the way, it doesn't mean that every piece of copy needs to try to close the sale. Look at it this way. Every communication you have with the marketplace does one of two things. Either it advances the next sale or it retreats from that. What this means is that you always need to keep in mind what you're selling and who you're selling to and how to frame your communication in favor of advance and not retreat. Okay, so when you put out a useful piece of content in an email or a social media post, that tends to work in your favor. There is value there. When you're stating a fact or going way off topic without any context on the fact, it tends to work against you. Now, a lot of this has to do with how you are deliberately positioning yourself in the marketplace. If you have a provocative presence, I mean, let's think of Ben Settle. He's like real provocative on purpose. And people buy from you because of that persona. Then a provocative post can work in your favor. It reminds your fans and prospects and customers why they like you in the first place. And if it turns off people who don't like you, it doesn't matter. They're not going to have anything to do with you anyway. So remember, you're always selling no matter what you think you're doing. And the question you need to ask is, are you selling for yourself or against yourself? 
I like this. You told me very early on when we first started working together, you said, if it doesn't push the sale, it doesn't belong in the sales message. And I later learned that that is also in writing fiction. If it doesn't lead to the point of the story, it doesn't, I mean, I woke up and I had a serious headache. Well, if this, if the headache doesn't help move the story along, you just leave that part out. And so I think a lot of times asking ourselves, asking ourselves, does this help push towards the sale? And if no, edit it out, get rid of it. Yeah. I recently saw a really interesting series on Netflix. I'm trying to remember what it was called. It's by Karen Slaughter. And I'm not going to remember the name of it, but she didn't write the series. She wrote the book. The series is based on, she's written, I, I don't know how many books. She sold 35 million of them. And the first thing I noticed about it was how focused, how every little piece of the story moved it forward. Yeah, so it, this is universal across copy, fiction, you know, efficiency, that kind of efficiency. What do they say? All right. Great writing is in the editing. It is. It truly is. Okay, number four, know what you want and ask for it. So Mayer tells this old story about Henry Ford when he had bought his first multi-million dollar insurance policy, and it was reported in a Detroit newspaper. One of Ford's best friends rushed over to the office, burst through the door, and practically screamed, Henry, why didn't you buy the policy from me? You know I'm in the insurance business. Ford looked up at him and said in a calm voice, you never asked me. Well, that story tells a lot, doesn't it? Mayor writes, don't let that happen to you. When you write a letter, don't be afraid to be explicit about what you want. He also suggests you ask at least two times in words of one syllable. Great advice, but as you know, we don't always follow it. I think there are two reasons. First, we don't always know exactly what we want. So it's kind of hard to ask for something you're unclear on yourself. Second, we're afraid that the prospect might say no. There's no need to be afraid. Some will. In fact, if you can get 95 to say no for every five who say yes, and you can scale, and your front-end offer is profitable, then you can make a fortune. Again, with the vast majority of people saying no. Now, another thing to keep in mind is if the ask is too big, break it down into steps. Maybe an email should only ask you to watch a video. Maybe the video should ask you to book a phone appointment. Maybe you should ask for the sale on the phone after all the pre-selling is done by the email and the video. Anyway, the clearer you can get on what to ask and the more clearly you actually do it, the better you'll do. What do you think, Nathan? This is something that I'm constantly going over with my daughter, which is people who ask for what they want get what they want way more often in life than people who just assume other people can read their minds. Yes, and shout out to Bella, who just graduated from middle school, too. Absolutely. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, number five, know your subject thoroughly. A mayor comes down hard here, and he should. Here's what he writes. Don't try to write any letter until you know everything you should know about the subject you're trying to cover. All too many so-called sales letters seem to admit many of the reasons for buying. 
They read as if some neophyte dashed them off in a spare moment between sharpening pencils and going out for coffee for the boss's secretary. I think the same thing is true today. I mean, we don't use pencil sharpeners as much anymore, and bosses often have executive assistants instead of secretaries, but the result is the same. And I think I understand why. Once you taste the power of direct response copy, you start to feel like you have this superpower. A power word here, there, a monster headline there, a nightmare story here, a crossroads close there, and almost like magic, you believe you've got a million-dollar sales letter. Not so fast, rookie. Part of the reason for this overconfidence is how simple good copy looks. But a lot goes into making a sales message that simple that works. And the first step is almost always research. And as we're going to talk about in greater depth next week, research doesn't mean just typing a few prompts into chat GPT and getting a summary of information, which at best is two years old and may or may not be factual at all. You need to find out who uses the product, what they like about it, what they don't, how they talk about it, how the product was made, what advantages does it have other products, things like that. And this takes some work and it takes some time. Whether it's a sales letter, an ad, an email, a webinar, or a sales page, you need to know a lot in order to put together something that works, right? Yeah, this reminds me of something that we've talked about in the past on the podcast, which is that for me, I've noticed the less I know about something, the more likely I am to over-explain it or go too far into detail. And typically when I really understand something, and I know that this is true for most educators, most people that are speaking as professionals on a subject, generally the better that you can understand it yourself the easier it is and the and the more simple you can make your explanation. So that might be one thing if you're finding in your copy, you're over explaining that it's long, it's drawn out, it takes too long to get to the point. It might be that you don't quite understand it well enough and spending a little bit of time going through those things that you mentioned. What, what does the product do? How is it better than the competitors? How does it relieve the pain points of the customers? What are the customers saying about it? Getting real clear on those will usually simplify the copy. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, I, I'm wondering, and I, I think I do the same thing. Um, uh, if you tend to over-explain almost defensively, why, you know, like your own mind say, yeah, see, I do know something about this. That when you know deep inside that you really haven't done your homework yet. You really don't know what you need to know. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Number six. Eliminate long and unintelligible words. Mayer writes, the one and two syllable words aren't nearly as pretty as the longer ones, but most people know what they mean and most important, what you mean when you use them. So I remember early in my copywriting career, I used the word indubitably in some copy for a client. He knew a thing or two about marketing and he called me out. He was right. It was a show off word and the much more easily understandable, undoubtedly, worked tons better. In the book, uh, Mayer quotes an article in the Christian Science Monitor by H. Phelps Gates, and this is worth including in the podcast. There is strength and force in short words, words that blast and boom, throb and thump, clank and chime, hiss and buzz and zoom. 
There is grace and charm in short words, too, like lull and hush and purr. There are words that work hard at their job, that pry and push, that slash and hack, that cut and clip, that chip and saw. As writers, we tend to forget how normal people talk to each other in everyday situations. Now, they don't talk like that, okay? That's clearly a a master of words, breaking it down to make it memorable, but they do talk in, in short, simple words. And when you're writing copy, you want to speak people to people in their language, which is usually made up of short words that get the point across and get the job done. I've heard never use five syllables when two syllables will do. Never use five words when two words will do. Going back to what we just talked about, I think sometimes we try to overcompensate for our own insecurities and knowledge about something by using those big words. I see it a lot with, I don't want to attack journalists here, but I I do see it a lot with journalists who don't really know what they're talking about. So they'll use a bunch of big words. I think that it's kind of a plague, but when it comes to copy, definitely simple words. There's something about just trust when somebody's not trying to cover up their lack of knowledge just by being straightforward and, mm-hmm. and using simple words with you. It, it has a subconscious trust building factor to it. I think that that's the, I think that's the thing that I really, t- that I really take away from what you just said. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'd agree with you about a lot of journalists. The best ones definitely are wordsmiths, but many of them over use words. I also had this very strange vision of the picketers in the Hollywood writer strike going, we use short words. We, they would never do that. They're not talking about their craft. They're talking about money. All right. Number seven, make it easy for your prospect to send you an order or an inquiry. Nothing has changed with that one in 73 years. Back in the day, direct mail marketers would make mistakes like asking people to pick up the phone and call them without putting their phone number in the letter or trying to make a sale without including an order form. And these days, the technology has changed, but as Led Zeppelin says, the song remains the same. Mm. The problem comes when you leave out two steps in your copy. One, the think-through, where you think it through ahead of time, and two, the walk-through, where you walk through it afterwards. Sometimes it's helpful to do something as tedious as put together a flowchart to figure out how an order comes in and drill down on the steps to make sure you have something in place for the customer to take that step. The walkthrough is where you actually try it yourself, or better yet, get someone else to go through the actual steps of ordering or opting in and stand over their shoulder watching and seeing how it works. There's so much to keep track of with online business that it's easy to mess up this part but it's the only way you're going to get to keep your business going. So make sure you focus on making it easy for your prospect to respond or buy. Mm. I think of a long day at work and you're trying to grab some groceries on your way home to make some dinner and you grab the three or four things that you need and you go to checkout and every single checkout lane has 15 people waiting 
and you just think to yourself, man, this is too much work for these spaghetti noodles, the spaghetti sauce, and this garlic bread. I'm just going to put it down and walk out. Sometimes the objections aren't, it won't work for me, or I don't trust their offer. Sometimes the objections are, man, there's just too many steps to actually, you, you want me to enter my credit card information three times before I, I'm just going to give up. Yeah, that's a really good uh, image, really good example. Thank you. All right, number eight, people, not names, people make up lists. Think about all the numbers we look at, cost per thousand, return on ad spend, opt-in rate, conversion rate, upsell rate, average order value. Then we have terminology, lead gen, recency, frequency, monetary. All these tech terms and numbers get us looking at our business and that's our copy and our customers objectively. And no doubt, you do have to know the tech and pay attention to the numbers. But one thing that can blow up your business in a heartbeat is failing to give enough attention to the human side of the equation. Mayer writes about it this way. The first thing you should know about lists, and the one thing that always seems to get lost in the shuffle, is that lists are not made up of mere names. They're made up of people, the people who have the same feelings emotions, senses, likes, dislikes, problems, joys, sadnesses, and yes, the same hangovers even. If you've done a good job putting your list together, those people will all have the same interests. This is me talking, at least as far as what you're selling is concerned. And if you've done an even better job putting your list together, those people will also have, on the average, a very high likelihood of buying what you're selling. Just remember, They're living, breathing people, not just names. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I have a couple offers where I sell things through e-commerce and they're physical products that I send in the mail. And I'm not going to knock on the education system, but a lot of people have trouble filling out accurate address (laughs) lines in the forms, order forms. And so... Mm -hmm. I have made it a habit to make sure before I send anything out and have it returned to me because the address wasn't valid. I just do a quick Google search and make sure, hey, this is a real address. And I have noticed that just doing that and seeing, oh, this is a house or, oh, this is a trailer or, oh, this is duplex. Just doing that simple thing helps me understand my market more and reminds me every single time that I ship something out that I'm sending it to an actual person. And even though I don't see the person, I see where they live. I see the neighborhood that they live in. And it might sound a little bit creepy, but it does help me remember that I'm selling to actual people. Every single order that I ship out is going to an actual person. Everybody who goes through my sales funnel, everybody who buys one of my products, every time I send out an email, I'm remembering these are actual people. No, that does sound good. But you know what does sound creepy? If you put a spy cam in the packaging of everything you sent out. Man, that would be way expensive and not a very profitable business model. That's true. But if you're really nosy, I'm, but no, I think, I think what you're talking about is really good. All right. Number nine, use your good pieces over and over again. This is an old and reliable trick in the direct mail business. You do a mailing and two weeks later, you send out the same letter. Sometimes people would clip a note on the top of the second mailing. This book was written 30 years before post-it notes were invented after all. Now, typically a marketer would get a 50 to 75% of response from the first mailing in the second mailing. 
So if you got 100 orders in the first mailing, you could get an additional 50 or 75 just by mailing the same piece out a second time. And it seems like an old school tactic that wouldn't work today, but it is working today, just not with snail mail, but with email. Mm -hmm. Smart email markers marketers will send winning emails back to the same list several times. Why? Because a winning message is hard to come up with. And when it works, it's likely to work a second time, maybe even more. I have one email that goes into every single list for a particular market. Every time I create an email sequence, it's either the first or the second one that goes out. And it's because it works. It works every single time. And I've noticed also people that sign up for one list and don't buy, but then they sign up for another list. That email, I'm not going to say which one it is, but if you sign up to more than one of my lists, you'll see that one of them shows up multiple times in different lists and it's because it works. And so you send it as often as you can. Okay. So proof positive at that point. Thank you. Okay. Number 10, read your letters out loud. Even in the 1950s, Mayer admits this is practically every expert at one time has listed this general rule for writers. And I have to say, this has not changed over time. My point of view has always been that copy is the spoken language in written form. Therefore, you would want to speak your copy after you've written it to make sure it sounds like conversation, which it should. And if it doesn't, rewrite it until it speaks easily. It's simple as that. Nathan, this is one of your favorites, isn't it? This is absolutely my favorite. It's the last step that I do in any editing. And it's because you'll always notice those things that don't sound natural. If you're reading it out loud, you're that's when you hear the unnatural writing and copy is all about being conversational. And you, if you're just reading it in your head, it's really easy to glaze over or smooth over the things that don't sound natural. But when you actually speak it out loud, that's when you notice, oh, that sentence just doesn't feel right. Cool. Okay. Well, do you want me to do we have time to recap? I know we've gone way over. We have time to recap. We're already over a couple of minutes. Why not go over a couple more minutes? All right. That makes sense. Number one, write your copy so your prospect will know what your product will do for him or her, at least. Two, the two factors that stop more sales more than any other factors. One, the lethargy of your prospects. And two, the competition for the almighty dollar. Number three, Make every letter sell. Number four, know what you want and ask for it. Number five, know your subject thoroughly. Number six, eliminate long and unintelligible words. Seven, make it easy for your prospect to send you an order or an inquiry. Number eight, people, not names, make up lists. Number nine, use your good pieces over and over again. Number 10, Read your letters out loud. Now, the book is called How to Make Money, How to Make More Money with Your Direct Mail by Ed Mayer. It's out of print, extremely hard to find. I saw a couple of used copies on eBay. It's not even on Amazon. I think it might be one copy in A books, but I found the best of it for you. Nice. David, 10 points, man. You, you really hit it out of the ballpark today and put a lot of work into this episode. I appreciate that. You just consistently you. do this for us and in, uh, in the listening audience as well. And uh, if people want to check out more episodes of the podcast, the best place to go is copywriterspodcast.com. And you've got a book coming out 
soon as well. So maybe not next episode, but in the next couple of episodes, I want to talk about your book because I got a sneak peek at it and I'm excited to talk about this one as well. I'm, I'm excited about it too. Little hint, it's about stories, but nothing like you've ever seen before. Oh man, it's so That's good. Yeah. So if you don't want to miss that episode, make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast on your favorite podcast app. And to catch more episodes, head on over to copywriterspodcast.com. And until next time, we will catch you later. Catch you later. Hey, did you enjoy today's show? Want to help get it into the ears of more listeners? Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast app. This is the Copy and Funnels Podcast Network.